I'm just really pleased to see where we're going with the program and the opportunities that we have to really expand access to care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Connecting ALS. I am your host, Jeremy Holden. It's hard to believe it, but 2022 is finally here. And with January, our gazes turn toward what is to come. We here at Connecting ALS will be spending the next few weeks looking ahead at the fights on the horizon as we continue to do whatever it takes to make ALS a livable disease while continuing to work for a cure. We begin this work with a look at what is being done to optimize care for people living with the disease, making sure people with ALS have access to the best quality care available while constantly working to improve standards of care across the country. And joining me to do that this week is Dr. Neil Thacker, Chief Mission Officer at the ALS Association. Dr. Thacker, thanks so much for joining us this week. You're welcome, Jeremy. How are you? I'm doing great. Doing good. I can't believe it, it's 2022. But then again, I, I say that every January. So um, I guess I should adjust my internal clock a little bit. Now, Neil, when I think about optimizing care for the community, my mind immediately goes to the network of certified centers and clinics. At last count, the association has formal relationships with 94 ALS centers that provide full multidisciplinary care. 73 of those also serve as ALS research centers. Now, a little bit later, we are going to be hearing from Lori Banker-Horner, Director of Clinical Programs at the ALS Association, and she's going to give us a bit of a deeper dive into how those centers work. But before we get there, I wanted to give listeners a sense of how that clinical network plays a role in achieving our goal of making ALS a livable disease. Yeah, that's that's a great point, Jeremy, and I think you you outlined it well, in the beginning, it's, it is really about making the best of what we have. And it's, it's remarkable to see, and we've seen this in other disease spaces too, that the treatments end up oftentimes having a greater effect in practice with greater experience when they're applied with greater skill than they had when they were initially released into the community and approved by the FDA. And we're seeing some evidence of this with Riliazol where the clinical trial showed an effect of an increase of three months of survival. And studies over time have shown that over the years that this survival time is increasing and uh, because of Rilizol. And the reason is probably because we're understanding how the drug works better. We're understanding when to apply it and how to apply it uh, to a person depending on their individual needs. And we, we do see this in other diseases all the time, especially in, in oncology. And so this isn't unexpected, but it, it's also, I think, heartening to think that the treatments we have now can be used to greater effect in the future when applied with skill as part of this comprehensive treatment environment. There's another important element to improving performance as well. So one is to take what we have and, and figure out how to use it better with greater skill and effectiveness. The other part is to pay more attention to the complications that come on along with ALS and to see what we can do to prevent them or delay them or to avoid them altogether. And we've been doing some work earlier this year looking at Medicare records and identifying that the rates, some of the rates of complications are leading to much higher rates of emergency room usage and inpatient hospitalizations. And we're seeing that especially for falls, for head injuries as a higher, a much, much higher cause 
of emergency room visits for people with ALS and then for the general Medicare population. We're also seeing high, very high rates of hospitalization for pneumatitis associated with aspiration of food. And this is also a well-known complication of ALS. And one of the things a multidisciplinary treatment team can do is help identify when someone is at risk for a fall or risk for pneumonia and start to work with the folks, their caregivers, their, the, the person themselves um, to, to reduce the chance of these adverse events, these complications from happening. And then we can help keep people out of the hospital. We keep people out of the emergency room. And that definitely reduces the misery, the terror that comes with ALS from these kinds of injuries, but may also end up uh, lengthening life. So not only improving the quality of life, but making it um, helping people live longer. And that's also part of the skill and the art of multidisciplinary care and why it's so important. The, the other thing that's really important about these centers, and I don't want to lose sight of that, is these centers, as you mentioned, 73 of them right now, are a gateway to clinical trials and other kinds of research. So research on new treatments and how they work, but also research on other aspects of ALS, like I mentioned, the, the complications that come with it, which are, are really important and I think are, are starting to get more attention because I think there are opportunities to intervene and, and help transform the experience of having ALS. You said 73 at this moment, and I know we talked just a few months ago about a partnership the association formed with the VA to expand multidisciplinary care. So in other words, the map that we can look at today of where these multidisciplinary clinics are, that's not set in stone. That's right. And and when you look at that map and it's on our website, you'll see we have more dense coverage in some places and, and lots of white space in other places. And our, our goal is not to get more clinics. Our goal is to get more people into clinic. And so we have to figure out how to do that. And it could be that we need a new clinic, like a new physical location for a place, or it could be that we need to expand uh, the hours or the access to or the transportation to uh, clinics that are already existing. Right now, it looks like uh, just under half of the folks that we serve are routinely attending a multidisciplinary clinic, and we need to up that number considerably. And one of our goals is to get that number to 70%. Now, of course, we're not saying that everyone needs to get to a multidisciplinary clinic, but we think just about everyone certainly needs to have that consultation and then figure out a care plan uh, that works for them, that's feasible, so they can get to a clinic, if not ours, then one of the great ones that are supported by the Muscular Dystrophy Association or in other places because we do see that these multidisciplinary clinics really make a difference in people's lives. And some new tools that came online this past year to try and speed up the process of getting people to those clinics after diagnosis and early diagnosis, I'm thinking of Think ALS. Another thing we learned uh, very recently, Dr. Thacker, from the ALS focus research is uh, a high percentage uh, of folks who responded to that survey had a telehealth visit during the pandemic. And I know a lot of work is being done to try and maintain some of the flexibility, some of the expanded access to telehealth, including across state lines. In other words, expanding access isn't just about building new clinics. It can be about access through things like telemedicine. Um, how does that shift the dynamic in terms of how we think of access to multidisciplinary care? Yeah, we're, we've been finding that the telehealth is really important and useful not only for maintaining continuity of care for 
people with ALS, but also for supporting clinical trials as well. It's an opportunity in a clinical trial for more frequent data collection and, and simply for an easier way to participate in a trial if you don't have to go in to see a clinician all the time. And so we're working on a bunch of things to continue and to expand on all the progress we're seeing in telehealth. We've been supporting two separate bills in Congress that would either maintain or expand telehealth access uh, for clinical care. Uh, we've been working with the FDA and Congress on uh, remote clinical trial access so people can work through the complexities of, of having their clinical trial with more telehealth engagement. And we've also been talking about the licensing that it takes to allow people to treat uh, folks through telehealth, and sometimes that's a state issue. And so we've been thinking about that as well. We, you know, the, the good side, the silver lining of this pandemic is we've learned a lot about telehealth. And uh, I think our the payers, the folks who pay the medical bills, and uh, Congress has a lot more confidence in telehealth than they have before. And so we just need to lock in all of these um, progresses and, and, and keep moving forward. I mentioned at the outset that we all just put new calendars on the wall for folks who still hang calendars on the wall. And, you know, it's it, it's a little bit arbitrary, but January is a time where we start to shift our focus ahead and, and what's to come. So as you look ahead at the next 12 months, what do you see as some of the key fights or initiatives or projects that will keep moving forward in terms of optimizing care and then expanding access to that care? Well, uh, one bit of good news that we had at the end of 2021 is the Act for ALS was passed. And so uh, at the time we're talking right now, it hasn't been signed into law, but we're expecting to that to happen soon. And then we're looking forward to seeing that bill get funded and more people getting access to care through that, through that bill, which would be fantastic. There's uh, lots of different provisions in that bill. Of course, one of the main ones that we're very excited about is the opportunity to provide expanded access to experimental treatments to people with ALS. And there's also an opportunity to provide additional research funds and structures to speed the search for new treatments and cures for people with ALS. And that's gonna help everyone. And so I think it's really important that we keep on that fight and make sure we get all the funding uh, to get that, get those programs up and going and get everyone with ALS uh, benefiting from them. That's, that's very exciting. I also think we're going to see some new treatments on the horizon. Hopefully, you know, we've been hearing lots of positive news about Amlex and hopefully the FDA will have make a decision and that decision will be positive and, and that'll be a, a good thing. And there are also other clinical trials constantly going through the pipeline. And so we're going to hear more and more about them and a lot of them will not work, but some of them will and we'll, we'll keep moving forward from there. When those treatments come, we're going to have to figure out how to get them paid for, how to get everyone access to them that uh, will benefit from them. And that's, again, where uh, these multidisciplinary centers can be really helpful because they're the ones who know the best and the first of how to apply new treatment within the complex conditions of an individual with ALS and all the other medications are on, how to make those things work in harmony. That's where you really need that experience. And, and the folks at the most disciplinary centers have that experience. Well, I know it's not the right season for this, but I think you, you planted an Easter egg in there about a conversation we may be having sooner rather than later down the road. But I'll leave it at that. Uh, Dr. Thacker, thanks again for your time this week. I'm looking forward to talking to you throughout the year. Let, let me just make a couple more points, if I may. So, you know, 
The most important thing I think we can do is to help get people the treatment they need and also to keep from getting sicker. And so one of the things we look forward to are new treatments, but the other thing we're looking forward to is less suffering, fewer complications. And there are some things that we can do today, even outside of a multidisciplinary center to, to do that. And, and one of those is to, to reduce your risk for pneumonia is to get immunized. So not only your COVID medications and the, and the medication, you know, the COVID vaccinations for the people around you that you come in contact with, but the flu as well. The flu causes all kinds of respiratory problems. And I just don't want anyone to have to go to the hospital for pneumonia. I, that's something we can prevent to a large extent. And that's a very simple thing people can do. And again, if you work with your clinicians, if you work with your care service leads, there's some very, I think, specific things that might be helpful to an individual uh, that we can work through as well. So it's not only about the new stuff, the surprise, the good news. It's also about making the best of, of what we know. And um, I think there's a lot of opportunity for growth and improvement there as well. Well, it sounds like a lot of hope on the horizon and some good tips about taking advantage of the, of the resources and the care uh, support that is available now. Uh, Dr. Thacker, grateful as always for your time. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Jeremy. Well, as I mentioned at the top, I had an opportunity recently to chat with Lori Banker-Horner, who is the Director of Clinical Programs at the ALS Association. She gave us a deep dive into clinical care and those multidisciplinary clinics that Neil talked about. Let's hear from Lori now. Well, Lori, thanks so much for being with us here on Connecting ALS this week. Oh, I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, returning champ. We didn't scare you off the, the last time we had you on the show. So that's that's good news for us and for listeners. But, you know, today we're talking about something that I know is near and dear to your heart, and that is the multidisciplinary care clinic network. I want to get into some of the evolution uh, of, of how that helps, how it came to be. But f- just for purposes of maybe listeners who didn't catch your last appearance on the show, uh, can you just tell us a little bit about your role at the association and your partnership with the clinics across the network? Well, certainly. So my role, I'm the Senior Director of Clinical Programs with the association. And my main role, as, as I look at it, is to provide access, increased access to care uh, to individuals living with ALS and their families. And I work directly with the clinics, with the chapters, with uh, individual uh, clinicians within the teams to really uh, bring these clinics to fruition. Also, multidisciplinary care is so key to just the quality of life of our patients and, and their families. And I will work with uh, clinics or chapters that are forming uh, the clinic relationships as well as work with them during the certification or recognition process. And then also after, sort of troubleshoot if there's any issues happening or if if they're looking at new ways, kind of gleaning uh, new ideas and and great uh, looking at best practices from clinic to clinic. There's there's a lot to the program and it's exciting to be part of and um, we keep learning. Keep learning and keep growing. Um, talk to us a little bit about where that network is right now in terms of size, scope, distribution, and and how it got there. Maybe go back to the to the beginnings and how the the clinic 
network, how the how this program started, and and where it's come since then. Well, currently, our clinic networking within the United States, we have seventy four certified treatment centers of excellence around the U.S., and we have twenty recognized treatment centers. Uh, the difference between the certified and the recognized, each must meet really stringent requirements and um, a really strong process to go through for that designation, including a site review, et cetera. So we're, we're working with them. It's a, really, it's a really valued program and we always want to keep the highest level of integrity for the program. Sure. We, um, there are continued from this point on. I have several clinics in the queue that are working towards um, certification or recognition. Of those 94 currently, there are nine that are VA ALS clinics. So we work very closely with the VA to serve our veterans with ALS as well. The program itself, we can date back to 1989. With It wasn't as formal as it was, of course, now. I mean, looking at the association just being established in 1985, you can imagine it was. Sure. But we have a few clinics currently today and actually the clinic medical directors that are still in place since 1989. Um, So that tells you about the longevity and the commitment of these medical directors. And so then as we move forward and there were some, the the multidisciplinary um, clinic program is based on the American Academy of Neurology practice parameters, which were established in the late 1990s. And so the clinic itself, or the clinic program itself, was, you could say, formalized through those years. And um, I was a part of, when I was with the Wisconsin chapter, and a little bit of my background, I was with the Wisconsin chapter for 20 years prior to coming to the ALS Association and was part of the 26th certified center, which was in uh, 2006. So... We are at 94 right now. Back then, we were at um, uh, you know, uh, under 30. The Ice Bucket Challenge occurred in 2014, which really provided so much opportunity for our clinic program to grow. Yeah. And the funds that came from it allowed us to move forward and certify, work with more clinics and certify um, more. And so... After the Ice Bucket Challenge, prior to the Ice Bucket Challenge, there was a certified center designation only. But we recognized that there was a need. There were some clinics that were really strong, strong multidisciplinary care clinics that weren't able to or didn't have the funding or, for whatever reason, were not doing research. But they were really good um, referral sources and strong partners. And so the recognized treatment center designation was born and that was in 2014 and so it has grown prior to that we uh 2014 there was approximately 33 clinics and so since that time we have grown exponentially and we're really looking at strategically where clinics are going to be um, where we're going to be working with clinics we want to provide in those underserved areas better access to care Uh, and so really taking a look at that as that's a big part of our strategic plan in providing access to care. Absolutely. And, you know, as we think about 
providing access to care to people who are maybe in underserved geographic locations. It occurs to me that telehealth has grown so much in the last year, two years since the COVID pandemic. And we know from the ALS focus survey that 78% of respondents used telehealth to access their health care. How is that transforming the clinical network? Well, with the pandemic, it really transformed everything. It allowed continued care that clinics and I think I've mentioned in prior conversations with you that the, it just, it was amazing to see how the clinics pivoted, even those without the infrastructure to do so, really worked hard and were successful in providing telehealth. So it wasn't perfect. And, you know, there were cer- certain circumstances, you know, certain tests like respiratory testing at the early stages and, and just functional testing that couldn't really be done um, as well right. as in person. But it was a great option. And moving forward, even though um, I believe the majority of clinics that I've worked with feel that they're going to continue the telehealth because it provides a great option for people, you know, that maybe people that are uh, slowing or they're not progressing as quickly. So they don't have to come as often. And maybe you can do a telehealth visit in between. Or if there's an issue that's occurring, it's a quicker way for the doctor to be, or the clinician to be able to see the patient. Or if people are at sadly end of life, it's, it's a way to keep connected with them because it's much too hard to try to get into clinic. Um, So it really has a place. And I believe, you know, we have to look at how funding is going to continue because, you know, with Medicare and so on, but um, we're hopeful. And I know there's, I believe there's really going to be a hybrid. Yes, I think that's what we've heard from a lot of folks, both at the at the clinic level and then people who are on the on the patient side of clinic visits, where this is this is a nice to have, maybe sometimes in person is preferred. But I I, I think you're right. I think that that hybrid model sounds and in 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 many aspects of life, frankly, but certainly in healthcare. You talked about finding areas where we can continue or where the association can continue expanding the clinical network. How, how are the decisions made about where a need, where an unmet need can be filled? Well, when we're looking at clinics and just the clinics that are interested or, you know, even outside of that, we're looking at really mapping. We're taking into um, develop more of a, a data directed sort of plan, if you will. We have some great partners within the association that are very skilled at mapping out and keeping track of where our patients are and where those needs are and and really how far from a clinic do they have to travel and and what are the options. Like you said, telehealth has you know provided one option, but we're still those that has its its challenges. But we're just really looking at the, the distance that patients have to travel to a, a certified or recognized clinic, or even outside of that, we have affiliated clinics, which may not be uh, have a formal designation, but they are ALS specialty clinics that are chapters really they use as referral sources, and they're they're very good clinics. So we're even mapping that, and we're also looking outside of there as where our other clinics. We're looking at the whole spectrum. Where are clinics that are um, recognized by MDA? 
uh, or their specialty MDA ALS clinics. We're looking at what the whole spectrum looks like and really being more strategic about that. We talked about growth in terms of the the dots we can put on maps uh, where clinics are, and that's obviously incredibly important. But patients served, do we know how many people the clinic network provides service to in any given year? I don't have the numbers from this year's data collection survey. I know we were last year with 2020 we were serving approximately those, and these are the people that are registered with the chapter sure. um, that are being seen through the clinic network, is just under 10,000 people. Okay. It could be more because we're looking at, you know, this is registered with the chapter and attending clinic. And we're looking to increase that. One of the goals is to in- increase that to um, over 70%. So um, we want to, and that, well, that entails access to care. And and yeah. really understanding maybe why people stop coming to clinic or what are the reasons behind it and, and really working with those to troubleshoot and, and work on that as well. So we're here right at the beginning of 2022. I still can't believe uh, that's how, I can't believe we got to 2022, uh, but here we are. So what's ahead uh, for for you and for the clinic network as we sprint sprint ahead to 2023? Well, I'm pleased to say that we, we've been working hard. Our clinic, because of the pandemic, our clinic program and the process toward formal designation was, sadly, was really sadly delayed. We've had many clinics that were very interested, and they still are. I'm in constant contact with clinics and working with them. Uh, but one of the pieces of the certification process or recognition process is the final piece, which is an on-site review which entails a medical director and myself going in personally and visiting the clinic and really viewing what the patient experience is and making sure that they meet the criteria for the designation. So because of the pandemic, obviously, that was halted or delayed by travel and really institutional guidelines about not having outside visitors, et cetera. So I'm pleased to say that we worked with some of our medical directors who are experienced site reviewers, and we held our first virtual site review on November 1st. And um, we, we were able to formally successfully uh, certify our first clinic in 2021 um, on November 29th. And so we're looking at that as another great option, and that will increase our um, we'll be able to move forward finally. And that will be a wonderful thing. We'll be able to really increase our network and move move the program forward. Well, Lori, it sounds like you have your work cut out for you uh, this coming year, but a a lot of excitement in terms of plans to really build out the the clinical program and continue the success that we've seen over the last few years. Before we let you go, uh, any closing thoughts for listeners? I'm just really pleased to see where we're going with the program and the opportunities that we have to really expand access to care, which is so important in increasing quality of life and extending life expectancy for our patients. That's key and that's our mission. And so I'm excited to move forward. Uh, Lori, thanks so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me. It was nice talking to you again. Thank you again to our guests this week, Dr. Neil Thacker and Lori Banker-Horner. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, 
please tell a friend. You can subscribe to Connecting ALS wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you are there, please find time to rate and review the show. It is a great way for us to connect with even more listeners. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar. Post-production by Garrett Tiedemann. Production management by Gabriella Montequin. Supervised by David Hoffman. That is going to do it for this week's episode. Thanks for tuning in. We'll connect with you again soon.